Welcome to Leaders Upgraded, the place where people who want to upgrade and fast track their career, their life and their leadership journey tend to gather. I am your host, Tanvi Gautam, and I shall be speaking to the top 10% of the world's leading authors, CEOs, coaches and thinkers to bring you some of the best and brilliant ideas to fast track your way to success. Would you like an upgrade? Let's do this. I'm excited today to be talking to Daniel Pink, who's the author of five books, To Sell as Human, Drive a Whole New Mind, Free Agent Nation, Adventures of Johnny Bunko. He's a multi-award winning New York Times, Wall Street Journal bestselling author. He has his own TV show. More than anything else, he's a fascinating intersection of ideas and a mesmerizing storyteller. So I am greatly looking forward to our conversation. Welcome to the show, Daniel. Thanks so much for having me. I have been catching up on snippets of your show, Crowd Control, which is very, very interesting. One thing that stood out for me as I kept watching the different episodes was that there is a spirit of play in everything that you're doing. That episode where you had those little pieces put on the side of the road where they they would play music when the cars were going slow. And then there was the episode where you were rewarding people for driving under the speed limit, which mm-hmm. is just a new concept. And I see a little bit of positive psychology there. And I couldn't help but think that it is. We are, we are all about play and we are all about positive psychology. By the time we hit the organizations, I've lost that element completely. Think happens and what can we do to bring it back into the workplace? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, it's two parts. So what do you think, what do we think happens? Uh, if you think about in ways about autonomy and independence and self-direction. So when kids play at the playground, typical adult is telling them what to do, is organizing it for them. The play in many kids is self-organized. And I think what happens as we go into institutions, whether that institution is a school or a university or a, an org, a company at the premiums to control, someone else is controlling things. And that in many ways, if you look at workforce and human nature, it's this kind of battle between and outside control. In my view, which is, I think, supported by the science and I'm supported by most people's experiences, is that in most cases, section is preferable to control, both in terms of enjoyment and in terms of performance. I think that's what's going on with that, that, that we basically accommodate ourselves to being controlled and that suffocates this innate need for self-direction and therefore play. Let's explore that a little bit because I completely drink the Kool-Aid off mastery, autonomy, and purpose. And you had that brilliant TED talk, which every time I think I need a shot of motivation, I just go and watch it over again. Okay, all right. Uh, so I am, I'm just wondering: is there is there a point at the curve at which a certain population drops off because they're like, "This is not my thing." Am I foolish to believe that everybody like me? just wants to keep getting more of mastery, autonomy, and purpose, but something around me is saying, no, there might be something else going on with, with, with some people in the population. 
Yeah, no, I think that's another great question. I think it's actually a very, I think there's, there, there are about three or four very complex issues layered within what you're, what you're saying there. Uh, One is basically human nature and the other one is organization. If you go, if you go into the research on human motivation and human performance, says pretty clearly is something that's actually fairly nuanced. And it's this. If you, let's talk about reward systems in particular in organization. There's a certain kind of reward that we use in organizations. Psychologists call it a controlling contingent motivator. I call it, and that word controlling is important. I call it an if-then reward. If you do this, then you get that. Here's what the research shows pretty clearly. And, and it's important to understand this because there is nuance. It's not as black and white as people like to think. Mm-hmm. Um, if rewards are actually quite effective for simple, green, algorithmic work. Actually, they work quite well. It's not that we don't like rewards. We love rewards. They get us to focus in a laser beam-like way. That's very good, exactly what you need to do if you're following a recipe, following an algorithm. So if-then rewards are great for that kind of work, but rewards are not so great for more complex creative work because they narrow our focus when we want to have an expansive focus. And so what I think is going on and what you're working on yourself is this move in the workplace Throughout the world, whether it's Washington, D.C., where I am, whether it's Singapore, where you are, whether it's halfway between in Frankfurt, Germany, that that more and more work is becoming complex and creative and not algorithmic. And so what we're using a reward and motivation mechanism for 19th and 20th century work, when in fact, 21st century work requires a different, in general, a different motivational mechanism said, if then reward. Those controlling kind of rewards are effective for things that are relatively simple and straightforward. So it's not like we should abandon those in organizations altogether. What we should do is we should deploy the motivational mechanisms. Science tells us they work and use different ones where science tells us the old ways don't work. Okay, so so there's a little so there's a little bit there's a there's a little bit of that. It doesn't mean, and this is this is why I'm so fascinated by mm. I think there is a question, it's a strategic question. And it's an evidentiary question of whether that's too far, because there are some things inside of organizations that remain keen, mechanizable. I think that's particularly true in, like, I don't know how you run a supply chain in a holacracy, because supply chain, like, stuff has to be there on time. So, so that's the, so again, so there's a little bit of nuance there. Now, now let me shift at the risk of, making this answer way, way, way too long. Let's shift the focus to individuals. Uh, and I think it goes very much to your first question. So those individuals who are, who left, okay, those 15% of people who said, I can't deal with this. Mm-hmm. We, we, have to, we have to look at why that's the case. Now, the first thing we need to do is recognize they might be right. That might be a good move. And so directly to your first question, my deep belief, again, affirmed by science and and, and at least anecdotally validated by my experience as a human being and as a parent is this, that it is human nature, autonomous, self-motivated to learn stuff. 
I think that is our natural state. Now, that's a big claim. I, I recognize. And the reason I make that claim is, again, if you're, if you're a parent, I you to find me a two-year-old or a four-year-old who's not curious, engaged, separated. But as you were saying in your earlier question, I, I, I think experiences in or, human, human behavior, human, to some extent, human personality, simply our innate state, it's in certain context and something emerges from that. And I think the context for a lot of people are, especially in, in school and in big organizations, is to replace it with compliant behavior. So all of which is to say those, again, those 15%, my guess is that they're not doing that because they, they didn't make that. First of all, they might be right. Second of all, I think that their, their apprehension isn't so much a personality flaw as it is learn behavior from spending a lot of time in organizations that prize compliance rather than autonomy. Yeah, I, I like that. I have to confess, as I was hearing you talk, I couldn't help but think, I think I've become a little bit judgmental about people who are not striving for mastery, autonomy, yeah. and purpose as strongly as I am. I think that we just have to accept that whether it was the drive was taken out of them or they had motivational factors. Because thing I can say from my personal experience is that it sounds very, I can use the word romantic, to be talking about mastery, autonomy, and purpose, because indeed it is a call to a higher self. But somewhere mm. the, the is very, very tough because it requires a level of commitment that sometimes the real world you know, and the situations around us may not always allow us. I mean, I, I tweeted yesterday about where I said you know, steps to know if you're on purpose, one is feeling happy. Is it using the gift of you? And is it enabling others? And I had some people who tweeted back at me saying, yeah, that's easier said than done. I sure would like to live on purpose. But mm. just the reality of the environment around me makes it very difficult, to which, of course, my response was, well, we sometimes have moments of purpose and sometimes we have a lifetime of purpose and we want to try and do, do more of that. But I think that, that somewhere there is that, that need or that recognition that it is, it's a tough walk to that autonomy, mastery, and purpose, which needs to be nurtured like so many other tendencies that we have. And the ones, the tendencies that get nurtured might be the tendencies that grow. And the ones that get sucked out of us in the school are the ones that maybe never manifest. I mean, it's just a, a hypothesis. But no, I, but I think that's right. But let's, let's go back to your metaphor of the tough walk. I mean, let's say you're going to go out and take a walk. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, you can go out and take a walk on a beautiful, temperate, sunny day mm -hmm. with the wind to your back, with the wind at your back. That's one kind of walk. You can also go out for a walk when it's torrential rainstorms and everywhere. It's a different kind of walk. Mm -hmm. And one can, I can understand plenty of people who don't want to go out for a walk in that terrible weather. Mm -hmm. And it's, and that's, and that's basically context. Yeah. And so, again, when you look at behavior, it's a combination of our innate qualities and the context that we're in. And so if somebody's not taking a walk, you can't say oh, their innate qualities. You can say, well, maybe in their world, it's a torrential rainstorm and trying to go out for a walk in that kind of setting is foolish. Yeah. No, that's a very interesting way to look at it. And I shall commit to being less judgmental for sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's, but I think this is a very interesting topic. Um, it's a, yeah, there is, especially in 
it, it's an interesting, there's a great phenomenon, important phenomenon in social psychology, the fundamental attribution error. And it's, it's actually an error that a particular often make. And what it means is that when we look at somebody's behavior, I try to explain someone's behavior. Um, it's a, again, very Western, very American. Look at someone's behavior, try to explain someone's behavior. We attribute to their personality mm-hmm. and not so much to the context that they're in, mm-hmm. but context drives our behavior. Environment drives our behavior much more than I think Westerners are willing to, are willing to admit. And if you look at when, if you look at your own behavior, do you behave the same driving on the highway, in the grocery store, in the office, at the gym, kids' school? What again? If you look at our own behavior, we recognize. Wait a second, we are in some ways different people in these different in these different in these different contexts. Mm. And so, yeah, I, I wouldn't call it. I wouldn't. I, I do the same thing. I wouldn't call what we do being judgmental as much as kind of making a cognitive mistake, mm-hmm. if you see what I mean. We're, we're basically committing that fundamental attribution error. We're, we're attributing your personality. That explanation, it makes me feel better about myself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're less <laughs> of an evil person. <laughs> and so then, then I think the next step to this is that as leaders in organizations want to make the context as enabling as possible. So if you yeah. have to take a walk in the torrential rain well can i give you the boots can i give you the rain exactly exactly what can i do for you so so you have talked about the concept of meaning and the quote in the book is meaning is money i was hoping you could talk about that a little bit i I do think that human beings are meaning seeking creatures and you mentioned positive psychology if you look at people's well-being their if you look at people's psych, their their levels of satisfaction with life um and material things become kind of a threshold motivator adding more of those things doesn't move the needle on satisfaction very very much once you're past a certain level mm-hmm. what what seems to move the needle in terms of people's satisfaction are experiences rather than material uh, certainly, certainly close relationships, family, friends, people you love and care about. Also a sense of meaning and purpose in your life. That is, are you, do you believe in something beyond yourself? And this is, this is actually one fascinating reason why people who are religious in the traditional sense, part of an organized religion, let's take organized religion as an example. Or that's why I think that's one reason for the enduring power of organized religion. Mm. First of all, it gives you a community of people yeah. who you care about, who care about you. Mm-hmm. And there is a kind of a belief system that says what you're doing here is about something about something higher. And so that's what the 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 evidence shows pretty darn, darn clearly. And so I, I don't want to make it overly clinical, but when we have a sense of meaning in our life, when we have a sense of purpose in our lives, we're, we generally feel better. And, and, and I think in the workplace, we, a narrow sense, we do better. That if you, if, you, if you go into an organization, people don't know why they're doing what they're doing. Chances are they're not going to do it very well. Mm, I agree. One thing that I have noticed where, because we've had command and control organizations for so long, 
there is still a, a subsection of people who believes that meaning the, the thing that will be given to them by somebody else. It's like mm. the workplace. A lot of conversations that I have is no, no, it's not going to create meaning for you. And then yeah. HR certainly is not. You need to kind of take some ownership to craft meaning for, for, for yourself. Example research, I'm sure you're familiar with on, on job crafting, etc., which talks about people look for pockets of meaning in the most mundane tasks, which kind of keep them going. And so moving tracks a little bit from the organization towards the individuals and their competencies, do you think that, I can't find a better phrase, It's this is what's coming to my mind, that manufacturing meaning for ourselves in the workplace is going to be one of the key competencies going forward? I'm glad that you mentioned that work on job crafting, Amy Rosniewski and, and others. I think that it is, it's profound. I think it's a profoundly important. And I think that if, if managers, if bosses understood that, they would maybe take a step back and allow to craft and recraft their jobs to make them meaningful, to find, I mean, I love the way you said it, to find those kinds of pockets of meaning. Sure, if the metaphor, I mean, I don't want to, I'm not sure if the metaphor is manufacturing meaning. I think it's more kind of, uh, to me, it's a little bit more of a search, sort of uncovering meaning mm. in your life. Mm. And I, I think that's, I think that, that bosses need to take a step back and say, let's try to find, let allow people the freedom to find meaning and, and, and craft and recraft their jobs in ways that they find, they find meaningful. Now that said, I do think there are some things that that, that organizations can do to create the architecture mm -hmm. for these kinds of things to happen more readily. Uh, it's actually a couple of graduate students. Oh, it's not a, it's a, it's a professor and, a grad, and some graduate students at Harvard Business School. I love this research. Well, what they did is they, they went to a cafeteria. They rigged up the cafeteria at, with iPad, an iPad in the kitchen and an iPad at the cashier. And what the iPad people to do is it allowed uh, customers to see the cooks and the cooks to see the customers. So they played around with different permutations of that. So, you know, in some cases the cooks could see the, the customers, but the customers couldn't see the cooks. Uh, in some cases, the customers could see the cooks, but the cooks didn't, couldn't see the customers. In some cases they could both see each other. In some cases, fourth case, they couldn't see either one of them. And what, what they, what they measured, what they looked at was, does the cook's performance improve? And the performance in this case, fascinatingly, was measured by the quality of the food. Cooks' performance increase when they can see the customers. And the answer was absolutely. Mm. So if you think about that, that's a very simple thing that organizations can do mm. to give people more meaning in their work and see the outcome of it. Mm. So if you're think about how we deal with cooks, cooks are in the typically in cafeterias, the question in the back, mm. they can't see the fruits of their labor. Mm. And, in, and when they can, their, their job satisfaction and their performance goes up. So that's a kind of an architectural thing that, that involving meaning that organizations can do. And I think that's the, the charm of uh, the technology like social media, that it allows you to kind of find your tribe and you know, out loud and, and, and iterate as it goes. I haven't seen missed thoughts on social media and engagement in the workplace. Have you had a chance to think about that link at all? Not really. What do you mean by that? So, for example, what 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 do you think about that? Well, I I feel that social media is is a technology that really allows us to connect with a very diverse group of people and make connections that normally we wouldn't have been able to make if we were working 
using technologies that were not so networked and emergent in some senses, allowing us to connect with a with a viewpoint very different from ours, from somebody who may be very much higher in the hierarchy than than we are. So I've had some mm-hmm. conversations with with some CEOs or very senior leaders who in the command and control model, I would never have had an opportunity to talk to. Oh, I see. Uh-huh. Yeah. And what I find is that organizations that understand the idea of social leadership recognize that this is a very important way to convey the purpose and meaning of the organizations to a much broader group of people than the ones who might be just reporting to you within your organization. I see. Yeah. Uh-huh. Right. So, but yeah, maybe that, that, that might be an idea for your next blog post. <laughs> maybe. I mean, I guess, I, I guess I, I think that in, in on, when it, you know, it comes to things, social media, Twitter, Facebook, those sorts of things. Yeah. I always, I always thought that the, the value for individuals was less the talking than in the listening. Mm-hmm. That is, you can, you can get you can expose yourself to a much wider array of voices mm. you would without that. Now, the risk that people have is that social media, like our traditional media, becomes a giant echo chamber. Mm. So you listen only to people who agree with you, who reinforce your biases. But if you break out of that, I, I think it's a great way to, I think social media offers this incredible chance, whether you're top of the organization, that you're just starting out, I think it offers a great way to listen. Yeah. So I mean that that I found that I found that really fascinating, and and then there was this other concept which I wanted to spend a couple of moments on, which I think is very important in the workplace because I do a fair deal of work on women leaders as well. Is this concept of psychological androgyny? Is that how how I yeah. pronounce it? Yeah. Huh? Could you elaborate on that a bit, and how how did that catch your attention? Well, it's just, again, that's in some ways it's a metaphor. There's a great line from Samuel Taylor Coleridge who says, he says, great minds are androgynous. Mm. And, and then there's also some research, fascinating research from Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, who early, the guy who came up with the concept of flow, which I think is one of the most important concepts in ecology and, and human flourishing. Mm. But earlier in his career, Csikszentmihalyi was focused very much on creativity. Mm-hmm. And so it's this, I, I think it's this ability to, I mean, it, again, it's just a metaphor. There are other metaphors that you can, that I think capture this as well. If you think about sort of being bilingual mm. uh, across boundaries, I think that it's, it, it's, I think it's that capacity that has become much more urgent. You see it even in our conversation here where I'm in the East Coast of the United States. You are 12 time zones away in Singapore that, and if you look about your own work where you're sort of bopping all over the world, yeah, the, if you think about the most important prefix today for flourishing, so just for, for, for flourishing in general, professional success in particular, is multi. I mean, you want to be a multi. You want to be multilingual. You want to be multicultural. You want to be multidisciplinary. And so I think it's, it's that, choose your metaphor, bilingual boundary crossing yeah. and draw the ability to have a foot and a brain in different worlds and move smoothly across those that's really important. Which it's a beautiful segue into the next question that I had for you, which is that I, I saw pictures of you. I saw a video actually of you 
at Narita Airport. And so I, I, I know and I saw pictures of you in Australia. So you spent so much of the, your time across the world and in, in Asia as well. Have you noticed any cultural differences in the way your work is being adopted or received or any, any particular pattern that might have caught your attention between? Hmm, sure, it seems. Every time I tell that joke, nobody laughs. <laughs> That's probably that, that people not laughing at my jokes is a is a universal and worldwide phenomenon, unfortunately. <laughs> um, you know, I think what's interesting, it's a good it's another interesting question. What I have seen and I'd have to think about it a little bit deeper. What I've seen is something a little bit almost the reverse. Mm -hmm. um, and I'll tell you what I mean by that. So let's so several years ago, 10 years ago, I wrote a book called A Whole New Mind. Mm -hmm. And that book argues that. Uh, logical, linear, sequential kinds of abilities are becoming less important because they can be outsourced and automated. And other kinds of what we think of metaphorically right brain are becoming relatively more important. I think the reaction to that was quite interesting. I, I thought it was interesting. So you go to a, so, so here in the States, people say awesome, you know, sort of creativity and and fluidity and nimbleness. The United States is, is great at that. This is going to be great news for the United States. And then you go to Japan and Japan will say, ah, premium on design, contextual thinking. This is what J Japanese are great at this. And then you go to Korea and they say, this is the direction the world is moving. Koreans are great at this. And so what, what I found is that, is that different national ethnic cultures will look at some of the material and, and basically find ways that it reflects their own experience. <laughs> I think we all want to feel good about ourselves. <laughs> I think that's part of it. And it's also, again, so I think the, it's an interesting question. So is it, are people being delusional or are they actually, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. do, do they have a point? And I think in many cases, and I think the answer is it's probably both of those. It's probably both of, both of those things. Now, if you get to something like, uh, let, let's take Japan as a good example, um, and some of the research in drive about autonomy. Superficially, people will say, oh, very autonomous, very freewheeling, this is great. Whereas Japan, a little bit more straight-laced and a little bit more conformist. And there's research from the folks who created self-determination theory, Edward D.C. and Richard Ryan, showing that this this drive for self-direction is, is an innate human drive I mean, it's above the surface. Mm -hmm. So in America, you, the, the sort of the desire for self-direction would be manifested by, say, I'm going to move from Cleveland to Houston to start a new job. I'm going to quit my job and start a new business. Whereas in Japan, it's, it said, well, I want to actually have some control over my life. I want to have some sovereignty over what I do and how I do it. But the ultimate aim of that is to make my company better, to make my family more prestigious. And so, 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 so again, so even some what the research shows, at least on certainly on autonomy and self-direction is that it's actually a universal impulse. Mm. And we sometimes get faked out because it might express itself somewhat differently above the surface. So much, Daniel. I appreciate your spending time with us today. It's been a fascinating conversation. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you. I'm sorry that it is such a short conversation. I feel like I could have talked. Yeah, no, it went so fast. I couldn't believe that when you started wrapping up, I said, well, we've only been talking for like six or seven minutes. So that concludes this episode of Leaders Upgraded. But wait, 
your journey is just getting started. Go to www.leadersupgraded.com for more insights, more inspiration, and more tools to continue the journey. And if you have someone who you would like to nominate for the podcast or a particular topic you'd like us to cover, then also visit www.leadersupgraded.com and let us know. If you like this episode, please do share it. Please do subscribe to the podcast. And I look forward to continued upgrades with you. Take care.